Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Equipped to Serve, a study in Paul's pastoral epistles. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Please open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6. What we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And over these past several weeks, we've been working our way through what are called the pastoral epistles. These are three letters written by the Apostle Paul to two young pastors, Titus and Timothy. We've been working through 1 Timothy, and today we're actually finishing the letter of 1 Timothy. Doesn't it feel good? It's always so satisfying to have studied our way through an entire book of the Bible. So we're going to be doing that today, finishing 1 Timothy. Next Sunday, we are going to begin a short series for the season of Easter. And the way that's going to look like is we're going to start off by following Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. It says there in Luke chapter 9, it says that Jesus set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem, knowing that he would die and then raise again. And so we're going to follow Jesus on that path up to Jerusalem, his death and resurrection, really focus on these things over the next couple weeks, and then look at what happened after Jesus' resurrection for a couple weeks. Then we'll be back in 2 Timothy and Titus for the remainder of this Equip to Serve series. So today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word knowing that it is a living word, this living and active, that it cuts to the core of who we are and it reveals things about us that we need to learn, Lord, the things that you want to deal with in our lives. And so we, we now just give you, Lord, our attention. We give you our hearts. We give you really just permission, not that you need it, but we, Lord, ask that you would work in our lives through your word today. We ask that you would speak to us, and Lord, let us be teachable. Let us receive what it has to say, and by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would do a transformative work in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, years ago, some friends of mine, they were visiting Europe, and they took an overnight train to Prague from another major European city, and when they arrived in Prague, it was morning, And the first thing they needed to do, they needed to get some local currency so that they could buy things and pay for things. So they went there in the train station. They were walking towards the currency exchange window. And as they got near the window, some people approached them from the side and said, hey, you know, those currency exchange places, they kind of rip you off. So, you know, if you want to save some money, we could give you a better rate. You could just exchange with us directly. And my friends thought, that sounds like a great deal. So they handed over $300 to exchange to these nice men who in return gave them a handful of colorful European bills, you know, with big numbers and lots of zeros and writing on them that my friends couldn't understand. So my friends, you know, they're feeling pretty good because they, they gamed the system, they cheated the system, and now they've got a bunch of extra money in their pocket. They, they got this currency exchange, so they headed out into the city to spend their local money. The first place they went was a small restaurant where they got some breakfast. They ordered the breakfast. When it came, they timed to pay. Of course, they handed over their money. And of course, the waiter responded that their money was absolutely worthless. It was not something that he could accept because, first of all, he said, it's from Bulgaria. And secondly, he said, 
This is the old Bulgarian currency, which got replaced several years ago. In other words, this money they had was completely worthless. Now, what they had received, it had the appearance of real money, but it didn't actually have any real value. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that where you received something that looked authentic, but in reality, it was just a worthless counterfeit. Now, here in the book of 1 Timothy, Paul the Apostle has been talking a lot about the difference between things that are real and true and things that are counterfeits. For example, he's been talking about the difference between the true gospel and counterfeit gospels. He's been talking about the difference between true spirituality and counterfeit spirituality. Here in this final chapter, Paul is going to be talking to us about the difference between true purpose and true fulfillment, as opposed to things which promise fulfillment and purpose, but in reality, they're just counterfeits, which do nothing but distract us in life and make empty promises that they can't pay on. So here at the end of the book, end of this letter, Paul is going to urge Timothy and us, he says in verse 19, to do this, to take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that phrase because you know what it implies? It implies this. If there is a kind of life that is truly life, well, that means there's also a way of life that is less than truly life, that is not truly life. In other words, there are certain goals pursuits, and values, which many people in this world live for and chase after, which although at first glance they might appear to be fulfilling and worthy pursuits, but in reality, they're like counterfeit currency that doesn't actually pay off. They only leave you empty and broke. And this is all the more important if we consider the fact that our decisions that we make in this life, our actions in this life, can actually have implications for all of eternity. So what is the life that is truly life and how can we take hold of it? Well, the title of today's message is The Life That Is Truly Life. And what we're going to see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21 is this. We're going to see that true life is found in pursuing and taking hold of the things for which Jesus gave his life for you. Let me give you that thesis statement, that summary sentence one more time. I'd love it if you'd write it down. Take that thought with you as you go out into your week this week, and it will also serve as our outline and our guide as we work through these 12 verses. So here it is one more time. True life is found in pursuing and taking hold of the things for which Jesus gave his life for you. So let's break that down. The first part of that, let's talk about true life. Paul begins this section of this letter, this final section, by saying this, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Now this book, 1 Timothy, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was his protege, and Timothy had been his right-hand man over the many years that Paul was a missionary, going on his journeys, preaching the gospel from city to city, planting churches. And now Timothy after many years of being Paul's right-hand man, now Timothy had taken over leadership of the church in Ephesus. And Paul is writing this letter to Timothy to encourage him in his calling as a pastor and to instruct him about how to lead the church, especially through the difficult circumstances which they were facing. 
Now, when we say that Timothy was a pastor, uh, the, the pastor over the church in Ephesus, you need, you need to understand that what that meant is maybe something different than what we automatically think of when we hear the word pastor. See, he wasn't just the pastor over a single congregation that met all in one place. Rather, he was the leader or the overseer of an entire network of gatherings which took place both in Ephesus and in the surrounding region. So this is quite a large task that Timothy had been given to do. And the reason he had been asked to take this role on is because the church in Ephesus Though at one time it had been healthy and strong, perhaps the healthiest, strongest, largest church in the world at one time. But because of a lack of leadership, by this point, the church had become riddled with unhealthy practices and false teaching. And so Timothy's job there in Ephesus was to come in, take leadership, and fix these problems and bring this church back to a place of health. And a big part of that included confronting and dealing with the false teachers who were going around teaching things that were not in the Bible and were actually contrary to the gospel. These false teachers, they were trying to draw people unto themselves. They were creating factions within the church by claiming that they had some kind of uh, special revelation or some kind of special knowledge that no one else had. And so if you wanted to get these special insights, you had to come to them. So they were creating factions. This is what we would call in our day and age, we would call this cultish behavior. And in the first part of chapter 6, which we looked at last week, Paul talked about what it is that motivated these people to act in this way, to create these factions, to promote these false teachings. And Paul said, you know, at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is greed. It comes down to greed because what these people want, what they're pursuing is, on the one hand, they're pursuing their own glory. And on the other hand, they're actually pursuing money. Right? They, they think that if they can draw a bunch of people to themselves, that that will bring them glory and fame and notoriety, and that will lead to money and wealth. And Paul said that that's so incredibly unwise, what they're doing, because, he said in verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so when Paul says here in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. The things that Paul is telling Timothy to flee are the pursuit of his own glory and the love of money. Unlike the false teachers who were chasing after those things, Timothy was to be different. As a man of God, he was to have a different set of goals, a different set of pursuits than other people in the world. You know, Jesus said that the reason he came was so that we might have life and have it abundantly. So what is the abundant life that Jesus came to give us? And think about this, though. If abundant life, if this abundant life can only be found through Jesus, then that means that people who are living apart from Jesus are living a life that is less than what it could be, than what it's meant to be. It says in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now what that tells us is this, that the things that most people in our society, in our world today, the things that they are chasing after and pursuing and living for, they are things which people think 
are going to give them fulfillment and purpose and hope. But in the end, these pursuits will only leave them empty and lost. True life, the abundant life that Jesus came to give us, is a life characterized by hope rather than hopelessness. It's a life characterized by purpose rather than meaninglessness. And that kind of abundant life isn't found in chasing after the things that most people in this world are pursuing. It's not found in seeking your own glory. It's not found in seeking to be rich or having material possessions or physical pleasures. Then what, what is it found in? Well, let's continue to look through our sentence. True life is found in pursuing. It's found in what you pursue. Look at what Paul says in verse 11 in the second half. He says this. He says, flee these things, but instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith. You could put it this way. A man or a woman of God is characterized by what they flee from, what they pursue, and what they fight for. That's what these verses tell us. A man or a woman of God is characterized by what they flee from, what they pursue, and what they fight for. You know, this letter was originally written in Greek, right? So what we are reading in English is an English translation of the original Greek text. And in the Greek text, that word flee is actually the word fugo from which we get our word fugitive. Right? Flee like a fugitive. Think about that. A fugitive is someone who is on the run. Why? Because there are people who want to take them captive. There are people who want to arrest them and imprison them, and they're running for their freedom. They're running to maintain their freedom so they don't get taken captive. In some cases, a fugitive is someone who used to be held captive, and they escaped and they found freedom, and now they're on the run, lest they be taken back into captivity. And Paul says, that's what it means to live the Christian life. You've been set free in Jesus. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, we're told, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, the yoke of slavery that's talked about there is slavery to sin. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34. He said, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's a powerful thing to say because a slave is someone who does not have complete control over themselves. A slave is someone over whom someone else or something else wields control. It controls what they do and what they don't do. And this is the irony, right? So many people, when we sin, we tend to think, I'm a free person. I'm exercising my freedom. I'm doing whatever I want. I'm acting out my freedom. And the Bible, Jesus himself says, no, you're not. You know what you're doing? You're acting like an enslaved person. You're not acting as a free person. You're submitting yourself to bondage. You're doing something that will hurt you and potentially destroy you and others around you. And Jesus said, listen, if you do sin, you are a slave to that, but I have come to set you free. And he said, if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. And so to a person who has been set free from bondage to sin, as it says in Galatians 5, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Instead, Paul says here in 1 Timothy 6, flee these things. Run away from them like your life depends on it. Run like a fugitive from those things, like someone who has found freedom and is trying as hard as they can not to be taken captive ever again. 
You know, throughout Paul's letters, he instructs people over and over to flee certain things. Here's a short list here for you. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, flee sexual immorality. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, flee from idolatry. Idolatry being anything that would take the place in your heart that rightly belongs to God. Anything that you would look to, to give you the things which only God can truly give you. That's idolatry. And Paul says, flee it. Then in 2 Timothy 2, 22, he says, flee youthful lusts. Here in 1 Timothy 6, flee from the love of money. Flee from the pursuit of your own glory. And what's the most effective way to flee from something? It's by pursuing something else, right? So think about it. If you're running, you can only run in one direction at a time. And so you're not just running away from certain things that would enslave you, but you're running towards things that will give you lasting freedom, purpose, fulfillment, and joy. And what are those things? He tells us in verse 11, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Righteousness. You know what that means? It means acting in a way that is right in God's eyes. It's the opposite of sin, the opposite of evil. Godliness, that word literally means to be like God. We're told in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're told God says, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. Now, why does God want us to be holy as he is holy? Is it because God is bored and he wants us to be bored as he is bored? Is it because he's miserable and he wants us to be miserable as he is miserable? No. You know, I love this verse. It's found in Hebrews chapter one, verse nine. It's talking about Jesus. It tells us something about Jesus. And it says this. It says that Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And therefore, God anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond all his companions. You know what that means? It means that Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. And his happiness was related to, correlated with, his pursuit of righteousness, and his fleeing from wickedness. In other words, when God says to you, be holy as I am holy, the reason he wants you to be like him, godly, righteous, is because he is happy. He is content. He is fulfilled. He is whole. And he wants you to experience true life as he has true life. And he knows that holiness is the pathway that leads to true happiness. He also tells us in verse 11 there, he says, pursue faith. What is faith? Faith means trusting God, taking him at his word, believing that what God says is true. And in some cases, faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. We're also told to pursue love. The Bible tells us that we're able to love others because God first loved us. I find it really interesting, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, Nietzsche was raised by, his father was a Lutheran pastor, but he himself turned away from God and became an atheist. Well, Friedrich Nietzsche, he said, there are only two reasons why people do good deeds. He said those reasons are either self-glorification or self-justification. Let me explain. Self-glorification means that when you do good things, the reason you do them is so that other people will see it and 
congratulate you, pat you on the back, praise you. It's so they'll see it and, and they'll be in awe of you. It's self-glorification. Look at me. Look at the good things that I do. Self-justification means that you do good things in order to prove yourself, right? To prove that you really are a good, worthy person or perhaps to justify yourself to make up for some bad things that you've done in the past. You know what's interesting? The Bible would actually agree with what Nietzsche is saying and most likely he got these ideas through his Christian upbringing. But what Nietzsche says is incomplete and here's why. Because the Bible says that something special happens inside of you when the love of God comes into your life. Yes, apart from the love of God, perhaps all of our actions are motivated by self-glorification and self-justification. But something special happens when the love of God comes into your life. It says in Romans chapter 5 that God's love is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And as we experience the love of God, then you know what happens? We are equipped to truly love God and truly love others, not for our own glorification, not to justify ourselves, but truly to love and serve others just for the sake of loving and serving them from a pure heart because we realize that we have been justified already by Christ. We have the promise of eternal glory beyond compare in Christ. And because Jesus was God come to us in order to serve us, giving his life as a ransom for us, his love in our hearts enables us then to truly love God and truly love others without ulterior motives. We're also told in verse 11 that we are to pursue steadfastness and gentleness. It's interesting that Paul would talk about gentleness because right after that, in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. How do you be gentle and fight this fight at the same time? Remember, a man or woman of God is characterized by what they flee from, what they pursue, and what they fight for. To fight for something means that you're not being passive. It means that you're taking action. It means you realize that we're in a spiritual battle, that there's a real enemy, and that you have to move forward with determination and discipline in order to take hold of the thing which you're fighting for. And what is the thing that we're seeking to take hold of and fight for? That brings us to the next part of our sentence. True life is found in pursuing and taking hold of. And we'll talk about what it is in a second. But at the end of verse 12, Paul tells us what the goal of our pursuit is. Look at what he says there. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. By encouraging us to take hold of the eternal life to which we were called, Paul is telling us something really interesting and something really important. And that's this. He's telling us that eternal life is not just something that Christians will receive when they die someday. But rather, eternal life is something that you can take hold of and experience even now. In John 17, as Jesus was praying over his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, he said this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, eternal life is something that begins now, and it continues on for all eternity. 
It's not just longevity of life. It's also a quality of life. It's a life lived in relationship with God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the way to take hold of it is by grace through faith. I love what it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. There, Paul the Apostle, writing to the Colossians, he says, So then, just as you have received Christ as Lord, so continue to walk in him. In the same way that you received him, that's the same way that you continue in relationship with him. That's the same way that you continue walking with him. So how did we receive Christ? Well, we says in Ephesians chapter 2, right? It says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So the way we're saved, the way we receive Christ as Lord is by grace through faith. So we're here in Colossians chapter 2 when it says, just as you received Christ, so walk in him. Think about what that means. It means that you continue to walk with Jesus in the same way that you received him. How? By grace and through faith. He gives us the power and the strength by his grace, but it also requires us to have the faith to do what he says. But as you do that, as you take hold of this eternal life which Jesus purchased for you at the cost of his life, you begin to walk in it, you begin to experience it even now, this new life with a new purpose fueled by a new power. Paul says in verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and dominion forever. Amen. Now, listen, this wasn't just friendly advice or a gentle suggestion that Paul was giving to Timothy. Rather, it was a holy, solemn charge in the presence of God. And yet, being reminded of what Jesus had done and who Jesus was for him currently, that would enable Timothy, it would enable us to have the ability to continue on fighting that good fight until the end. Knowing how the story ends, that the victory belongs to Jesus in the end, that perspective gives us resolve to keep on fighting and pursuing here and now because we know that our efforts are not in vain. So that brings us to the final part of our sentence. True life is found in pursuing and taking hold of the things for which Jesus gave his life for you. Paul now here, he shifts gears, starting in verse 17, away from how Timothy ought to live and back to what Timothy needs to teach. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, earlier in this chapter, Paul talked about those who desire to be rich. But here, he's actually not talking about those who desire to be rich. He's talking about those who, who actually are rich, right? Who are already rich. And here's what's interesting. The message to those who are rich is not that it's bad or wrong to be rich. It's also not that they have to get rid of their wealth or take a vow of poverty in order to follow Jesus. 
Rather, the word to the rich is a word of warning and a word of encouragement, which applies specifically to those who are wealthy. Now listen, I know how this goes because I'm, I'm in the same, same boat as all of you, right? There can be this tendency when we read passages like this to say, man, I sure hope the rich people are listening, right? I sure hope they're listening because uh, obviously this doesn't apply to me, right? Because I'm, I'm not rich, but I sure hope that other guy that I'm thinking of right now, I sure hope he's listening to this because he's definitely rich. Well, here's some perspective for you. According to the website, Global Rich List, which is a West website that gives statistics about wealth, if you make $50,000 per year, then you are in the top 1% of wealthiest people in the world. Top 1%. If you earn $50,000 a year. Historically and globally, we are the 1%. We are the wealthiest, richest people in the history of the world and in the world even today. So listen, I just say that to say this. When Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, he's not talking to someone else. He's talking to you and me. He's talking to us. So we should listen. And what he's saying is that there is a danger that comes along with wealth. There's a danger. And the danger is, he says, that we would become proud because of our accomplishments, that we would have this sense of self-sufficiency, and that we would find our security in our savings accounts and our investments rather than in God. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our daily bread. That is a prayer of daily dependence on God. For most of us, we don't live very close to our needs. In other words, we've got food and savings stored up. So we can, we can get along for a little while. Right? We're going to be okay. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's probably a lot of wisdom in that. You could find a lot of good things about that by looking in the Proverbs and godly wisdom. But there's also a danger in it. And the danger is that we can also lose sight of how dependent on God we actually are. There was this danger that God warned the people of Israel about before they entered into the promised land. Look at what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which was a speech given to the people of Israel before they entered the promised land. He says, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The danger is that people, as they increase in material wealth, they can become apathetic about seeking the Lord and realizing their dependence on the Lord. And we can see that tendency. I think if you look, especially at the wealthy Western countries of the world today, we can see that tendency in the world today. It's something that we ourselves need to be on guard against. I love what it says in Psalm 62, verse 10. It says this, If riches increase... Do not set your heart on them, right? It's okay for your riches to increase, but don't set your heart on them. How, how do we avoid setting our heart on riches? Well, one of the ways that God teaches us how to handle money without letting money get its claws into our hearts is by teaching us to give. You see, that's what Paul says. Look at verse 18. They, in other words, we who are rich in this present age are to do good, to be generous, ready to share, rich in good works, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future 
so they may take hold of the life which is truly life. The way to keep your possessions from possessing you is to be generous and to give. We're to be rich in good works. And we can then use the money and resources we have now to lay up treasure in heaven and a good foundation for the future. Think about it like this. In the previous section, which we looked at, verse 7, Paul reminded us, you brought nothing into this world and you can take nothing out of the world. But here's what's incredible. You can use your earthly resources that you have here and now to have an eternal impact. Just imagine if when you get to heaven, there will be people there who will welcome you in, who will say to you, people you've never met before, and they will say to you, I'm here, at least in part, because of something you did. That's a reality that Jesus himself talked about in Luke chapter 16. He said, you can harness the power of your time, your talents, your resources, and use them for things which will matter for all of eternity. You can't take it with you, but you can use it now to have treasure in heaven and, re and dividends that pay forever. And having that eternal perspective, it shapes the way you view your life. It shapes the way you view your purpose in your life which is why Paul concludes this letter by saying, O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The deposit entrusted to Timothy was the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us to save us, as opposed to those who preached counterfeit gospels, who lived their lives for counterfeit purposes, Timothy was to hold fast to the true gospel of God's grace. And that's why Paul ends this letter by saying, grace be with you. Grace is when God gives you something as a gift. Not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, but it's his gift to you because he loves you. And the message of the gospel is the good news of God's grace. It's the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's the good news that God came to us in the person of Jesus in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to rescue us from darkness and death by giving his life as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived but failed to, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And Jesus died the death that you and I should have died. He died it in our place on the cross to take the judgment for our sins. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeating death and making the way for us to have eternal life. And here's what's interesting. All the things which Paul talked about here in this section that we're to pursue and take hold of, these are the things for which Jesus gave his life for you to take hold of, right? The Bible says that Jesus gave his life so that you could be sanctified, cleansed of your sins, made right with God. The Bible says that Jesus gave his life so you could have the eternal riches of inheritance in heaven, so that you could become his workmanship here on earth to show his heart to the world by being rich in good works. And the Bible says that Jesus gave his life so that you could have abundant life and eternal life. These are the things for which Jesus gave his life for you. And true life is found in pursuing these things and taking hold of them. And the way you take hold of them is by grace and through faith. It's God's gift to you. And the way you take hold of them is by faith, by putting your trust in what Jesus has done and trusting God enough to do what he says. It's in pursuing and taking hold of these things 
that you will find true life, true purpose, true fulfillment, both now and for eternity. True life is found in pursuing and taking hold of the things for which Jesus gave his life for you. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.